The Thrive Global Podcast is a production of Thrive Global and iHeartRadio. So if you have privilege, use it for good. And for me, that means making choices that are in line with my values. And my values are very much about humanity and representation. Hello, I'm Arianna Huffington, and welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast. Each week, we are having candid conversations with top business leaders, celebrities, athletes, and influencers to explore how they go from surviving to thriving, and how you can too. Constance Wu is one of Hollywood's most in-demand leading actresses. You may have seen her in the hit TV show Fresh Off the Boat or the widely successful movie Crazy Rich Asians. But the projects she's working on are more than entertainment. They are part of a movement to tell the stories of Asian Americans and immigrants who haven't felt seen or represented in mainstream media. Constance has been named to Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People list for her work as an Asian-American actress and activist. She currently stars alongside Jennifer Lopez, Lily Reinhardt, and Kiki Palmer in the new movie, Hustlers. It's based on the story of high-end strippers who turned the tables on their Wall Street clients. But at its core, it's about female empowerment. What I love most about her, and you will too, is how open, honest, and authentic she is. Welcome. Thank you for having me here. It's great to have you here, even in your sleep-deprived state. (laughs) (laughs) I got to read the Sleep Revolution book. Yes, I know. Change my ways. (laughs) So you come from an amazing family of hyperachievers. Your uh, father is an associate professor at Virginia Commonwealth University in biology and genetics. Retired now, but yes. But nevertheless, Mm -hmm. considering that his parents were very illiterate bamboo farmers, that's a big jump. Yeah, I think being an immigrant in any way, I mean, is a huge jump. If I imagined if I wanted to live in another country right now, I wouldn't even know where to begin. So to do that, especially in a place where you don't have any network. My dad went to grad school here, so I guess that became his network. His network, yeah. And then your sisters, one has a JD, another has a PhD in policy analysis, yeah. mm-hmm. and your younger sister is getting a PhD in comparative literature. No, she's done with Amazing. her PhD. They're all some form of doctor. Except for me. (laughs) But you're doing pretty well yourself. But it's just great to have a family of hyperachievers. Was that a lot of pressure on you? No. It's funny because I think part of the reason all of us are doing pretty well in our respective careers, which are not necessarily the most practical ones, except for my oldest sister, is because we were all pretty much self-starters. I'm the third of four kids. And there's a big gap between the two older ones and the two younger ones. I'm one of the two youngers. So I can't totally speak to my two older sisters' experience. Maybe they got a lot more pressure growing up. But I just never felt pressured to succeed. I just always wanted to because it felt good. I love that. That sounds like my home. (laughs) Oh, there are things I did not want to succeed in because I didn't care. Like, you know, math. But like if there was something I really cared about, I was very, right, but very But so it driven. was a self-imposed pressure not coming from the family. Exactly, yeah. And what made you want to spend a summer in a Buddhist monastery in Taiwan? 
Oh, you really did do your research, huh? Wow, how did you find I don't talk about that a lot. <laughs> I was in drama school. I was getting my BFA in college. I think it was after my sophomore year. And I was going through one of those phases, these like, I don't know, these artistic phases where you're reading like Thoreau and Emerson <laughs> or Prufrock, Whitman or David Foster Wallace. I just thought that I wanted to go to the woods to live my life deliberately. I had this whole fantasy of um, just really having that type of communication with life that didn't have all the noise around it. I sort of thought about going on a kibbutz, but then a good friend of mine who went to UVA and was a religion major told me about a program that they were launching through BLIA, which is Buddhist Light International Association, where they were going to sponsor... I think like 25 Western kids to live a monastic life for a summer at a mountaintop monastery in Kaohsiung, Taiwan. So I applied to it, not really thinking I would get in. We both applied, actually. Me and my best friend both applied, and I got in and she didn't. <laughs> and how old were you at the time? Let's see. If it was after my sophomore year, I was probably 19 or 20. How did it change you? That's actually why I don't like talking about it. And I love that you just asked me, how did it change you? Because when people find out that I lived in a Buddhist monastery, they suddenly have this mystical look in their eyes. It's like, oh my God, that must have been so incredible, so life-changing. I mean, I understand the enthusiasm behind it, but I think about the religions I grew up next to, Christianity or Catholicism, and how a lot of my artsier friends love to talk about how corrupt it is and how messed up religion is and how it causes all wars, etc. But then when it comes to Eastern religions, it's sort of like, oh, no, but that's different. And it's kind of not. It's just that the people who think it's better didn't grow up next to it, so they don't know it intimately. So it's just a romanticization of mm -hmm. something which I would actually encourage somebody who romanticizes that to sort of relook at the system with which they were raised. Because if they're lucky enough to have the choice of religion now, there's something nice about that system. If they're thinking about it, if they're caring about it. I'm more interested really about what is at the heart of every religion and every spiritual tradition, even if it's not part of an organized religion, because that's really what unites us. So that's really more what interests me. How yeah. can we bring that, whether we were exposed through Catholicism or Buddhism or anything, yeah. into our daily lives? That's what interests me. How can we integrate it? Oh, I, I mean, I could talk religion forever. That's really what I want to talk about, whether it's Buddhism or any form of Western religion. Oh, well, that's where we run into problems, right? Ranking. Exactly. And also even putting language around it, right? So language is a construct. The fact that we can't or haven't proved existence of a god, that's a deficiency in our methods of description, not proof that God doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Our method of description may be vocabulary, could be science, math. We've used those types of languages, color for art, sound for music. Those are different ways of expression that we've used, and we haven't really found that with religion. And I think that's what's beautiful about it is because it's faith is sort of letting go of the illusion of control, giving in to the concept of mystery. And I think if you don't do that, 
and you think everything is a closed system, you will have a very uncurious mind. So I think I am very pro-religious exploration of any kind. And yours continues. Yes. It's an ongoing exploration. No, I mean, I think I found my way around it, which is my comfort level. It's kind of like acting. There are different methods of acting. And you study all of them when you go to a conservatory. Some people only subscribe to one and some people take bits of the others. And I always compare it to learning the scales on a piano. Pentatonic scale, the major scale, the blues scale. Once you learn all those scales, then you can make music. Mm -hmm. But you make your own music out of the scales you learn. The same thing can be said for religion, acting technique. My two favorite things, acting and religion. <laughs> okay, I love that. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Crest 3D White. And we are back with the Thrive Global podcast. Let's rejoin the conversation. So if you had to describe the music of your form of religion, how would you describe it? Well, there's a book by J.D. Salinger called Franny and Zooey. They talk about Seymour's fat lady in it. And in the end of the book, Zooey, whose name is Zachary, actually, he says that Seymour, their deceased brother, was always saying, be funny for the fat lady. Be nice for the fat lady when they were kids. And then when they grow up, they realize the fat lady is Jesus Christ. If you go through the whole novel, they touch upon other religions and other ideas and the idea of piousness, being too pious. And so the fat lady is sort of my religion. It's a reason to lead a life of integrity. Because the fat lady is watching. Not because they're watching, because it's not a threat. You're doing it for them. Right, because you love them. Yeah. I mean, the way these kids in the book describe it, they imagined it as like some poor fat lady who is on a porch. Maybe she has cancer and she can't do the things that you can do. So do it for her. Do it for the fat lady. Mm. Do it for this marvelous opportunity that you have to be here on this planet in this body that the fat lady on that porch doesn't have. So it's basically ultimately about love. Yeah. An unselfish love. Which is probably the organizing principle of every spiritual tradition. I love that you found it in that novel. Yeah, it's a great book. It's also kind of connected with some of the things you've said around how you manage stress and how you practice self-care. It kind of gives you perspective, doesn't it, when you have a sense of something larger than yourself? It does, but I'll have to admit I'm actually not that great at managing stress. You're not. You've said that you've gotten better about managing it while carrying a show. Yeah. Well, actually, I think functionally I've gotten better at it. When you work on a show, you work 12 hours a day. And it would be really nice to like start out every morning and small talk with everybody. Hey, how are you? Oh my God, how's your weekend? Everything's great. But then I sort of learned that if I want to conserve my energy so I have the stamina to last through a 12-hour day and give as good of a performance on my very last take of the day as I did on my first take of the day, then I need to conserve my energy. I need to be a little quiet. I need to take time for that. I realized I needed to eat better. I needed to make sure that I got to go running at least once a week. That was something that was new because I had always just been like a waitress and had that kind of a schedule. Playing the guitar, does that help? Oh, yeah. Playing the guitar is a big stress reliever for me. It's like 
my favorite thing. And how often do you do it? Sometimes I'll do it like hours a day if I have time, like on the weekends. But sometimes I won't pick it up for like a couple months. It's very episodic. Yeah. You can tell by the calluses on my fingers whether or not I've played in a while. And I have some calluses now, so that means I've played, which means I've been stressed. (laughs) So you use it as stress relief. Yes, because you have to really focus because I'm I'm actually really not good at it. I'm very Mm -hmm. bad at guitar. So I have to really focus and stay in the present moment. Right. And stress for me often comes from anxiety about the future or worries about the past. And when you have just one thing that you can focus your attention on, which is just learning this song, finding a way to play this chord that fits my hand, that's how it relieves stress is because it puts you in the present moment, for me at least. So it's interesting how your uh, spiritual experience and your guitar playing are actually connected. Everything's connected. Everything is connected. It all comes back to loving and being in the present moment. Being in the present moment, yeah. Which isn't always good. Why not? I can be a very emotional, reactive person. To speak to that, if it's the present feeling, I think is healthy when you're in like a setting with trusted people who know that that moment does not represent all of you. Mm -hmm. But I think in social media, you can have a moment and if it's particularly fiery or something, it's almost like people think that that destroys some kind of political purity or something that you had. And so sometimes being in the moment, it's kind of better to breathe and to not act on your feelings. The reactions you had when you went on Twitter and Instagram and complained about the renewal of Fresh Off the Boat. I was actually very glad Fresh Off the Boat was renewed because I really loved the show. But I was really uh, upset that I had to give up another job that I had been really looking forward to and I had sort of been chasing for a while. Everybody told me that it was going to be canceled. I had been looking forward to the other play I was going to do. And so I guess the little kid in me came out because I felt like somebody had lied to me and I felt like I had to give up this thing that I had been promised. And so I behaved in a way that was not representative of how I've behaved for the past six years of the show. But suddenly the perception of the possibility of a woman's ingratitude became the conversation around me when there are so many more important conversations to have that are actually more representative of who I am as a person. And that's a very important point, which is the way we're triggered by something that somebody says in the moment and forget the context of who they are. We are acting as though that person just appeared on earth, published something on social media or did something, and they have no other history of who they are. Yeah. I feel very strongly that we need to challenge that because it... What do you think are ways we challenge it? Because I've been trying to think of some ways and I'm curious to hear yours. I think one of the first ways is to acknowledge that perfection does not exist, that nobody's going to be perfect. Yeah. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Perfection is not of this world. So when we have some kind of idea of perfection, it's easy to react to any anything that diverts us from it. But the other thing is not to be so easily offended and triggered by everything. But in order to do that, you need to understand why something offends you and triggers you. Because something that triggers me might not trigger you. Everybody has but a different... ultimately, it's all about perspective. And that's why for me, having a spiritual perspective or remembering about death. I mean, I'm obsessed with death. I just wrote about it this oh, week. Great. What do you think about it? What I think about it is... 
we are all having some kind of terminal disease called life, and we forget it. We act like we're going to live here forever. The Onion headline recently was death rate holds steady at 100%. (laughs) (laughs) That's really good. (laughs) And I love that because it's such a great reminder. I find it very liberating because in the presence of the inevitability of death, the fact that people are upset with you on social media is not such a big deal Mm. or anything else that may be upsetting us. That's true. Have you read Thich Nhat Hanh? Yes, I love Dignatan. Yeah, what you just said made me think of this book he has called Fear. Yes. Where he talks about the fear of death and I am of the nature to die. Yeah, what else do you talk about with death? I'm curious about this. Is this one of the books? Yeah, Thrive has a lot about death. I studied a lot of Greek philosophy and Socrates used to say, practice death daily. (laughs) And the Romans would carve MM, memento mori, remember death, on statues and trees, not because they were morbid, but because they felt that it put our triumphs and our defeats in perspective. Yeah. How does that not teeter into the area of apathy or pointlessness? What's that line? I'm curious. I don't think there's anything in you from everything I've read that would make us be afraid that you would be apathetic. And there isn't anything in me. me. I think that in our current culture, where people are so driven and obsessed with um, achievement and success, being able to put it in perspective would be incredibly healthy, both physically healthy, mentally healthy, and also I think it would make us more effective. It would make us more effective. Actually, you've said things about that. For example, love your work, and you go for an audition, you've said, you're not so completely obsessed with making sure you get the part. You do a better performance. Completely. I mean, I think that's when my career kind of turned around because I spent the first 10 years of my career auditioning to try to get the part. So if a script said, you should cry at this point or you should laugh at this point, or if I knew that, then I would try to laugh or cry at that point. Or if I knew that the director I was reading for really liked a naturalistic performance, I would give a very naturalistic performance. I would try to fulfill what I perceived other people's expectations were of the part, which kind of robbed me the experience of my creativity because I was attributing my self-worth with employment. And that's something that could easily be taken away from you. And it's like, you don't have any control over it. And then when I was in a really dark place, I reconnected to my creativity because it was honestly all I had left because I was so broke. I was so alone at this one point in my life. All I had left was my ability to be creative. Once I got back to that essential element of myself, it changed everything about my career. Because that was me creating meaning. It was something nobody could take away from me because I created. And if I go into an audition and I am auditioning for a part, there is nothing that that director can take away from me because I'm going to do what I, with my artistic integrity, think is right, know is right for the character, rather than try to fulfill my expectations of what they want. Because ultimately, you don't know what they want. But you can know what you want to do as an artist. And then it's also a great filtering mechanism because then you naturally attract the type of colleagues who have similar values to you. I love that. And 
the way you've described it as something that freed you yeah. to really be yourself and something that you said that I want to quote because I love it so much. You said, if I'm still waiting tables at 45, that was before your career took mm-hmm. off, and still generating meaning from within by doing great work, regardless of whether I book the job or not, when I'm creating my own meaning, that was your turning point, you said. Yeah, because I was really broke at that time. And I did ask myself, are you okay doing this for the rest of your life? And I realized, yeah, it doesn't matter if I never make any money doing it. There are plenty of people in this world whose source of income doesn't come from their passion, but they still pursue another passion, like, I don't know, whether it's golf or decoupage, whatever it is. (laughs) Why is it specifically in acting that one thinks that it's failure if you don't strike it rich? Making the choice is already a success. That's incredibly liberating. You said that part of the turning point was that you no longer equated your personal value with your employment. With my employment, yeah. Now that you've had such a big success with both the television series and the movie, has that changed? Does that become more of its own burden? Well, I'm having to learn a different part of the industry. You know, I'm a classically trained actor. And for me, it's all just about the craft of acting and the work and the character. But then there are other parts of it, like talking to you now, doing press rounds, which it's not something I'm used to. It's something I'm glad to do because I want to promote the project, especially if it's something I care about. And I really do care. I care a great deal about. But this is definitely a new territory for me. And it's also how your definition of success changed. I mean, I love you quote Maya Angelou saying, liking what you do and how you do it. The how you do it is really key because that's another thing I see in Hollywood is just people trying to take shortcuts or get rich quick things. And it's kind of like, that's so results oriented. You're robbing yourself of the process. Yeah. And then once you get that goal, if you get rich quick, it's that whole death thing. So what do you got now? You had a little scheme, a little tricky thing you had to do to get to it. It's better to go slow. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Crest 3D White. And we are back with the Thrive Global podcast. Let's rejoin the conversation. And how does all that thinking affect your relationship with social media? Well, you know, I'm still learning it. I've had a lot of trouble believing that I'm a public figure. And it's not because I'm so humble. Actually, it's probably because I have insecurity. I'm used to being overlooked. I'm used to being kind of like scrappy and like underdog. So I guess I understand the responsibility when you're a public figure to understand that your audience doesn't know all of you. So if I make some offhanded joke to my sister She understands what I mean by that and understands that it's not representative of me. But if I do it somewhere on the internet where some kid in Ohio might see it, it's a different story. And I think me accepting the fact that I have that reach sometimes means that there's a responsibility that comes with it. But what I'm grappling with right now is the thing you said about imperfection, because I think we could all do with letting people publicly fail. And accepting that that is not hypocrisy. It's not anything bad. It's just 
really normal. And not the kind of failures that are like cute failures, like, oh my God, somebody tripped on the stage, but like real failures, things that were real lapses in judgment that were maybe mean or harsh or wrong. It's not that I think people should be immediately forgiven, but I think it's a way to understand and accept your own stuff. And I think it would make people less hard on themselves. So as a public figure, what do you do? Why do you have to be one or the other? I haven't found the answer to that yet. I'm still kind of grappling with that. Well, as you are grappling with that, you can also help the rest of us grapple with that. I know. Because it's uh, very much something that we are all asking ourselves. I mean, if we believe in redemption, can we allow people to have lapses of judgment and then start their lives again? Or do we have to have a leper's colony where Hmm. all the people who have had lapses of judgment, small or big, have to go? That, to me, goes against a lot of spiritual traditions. Yeah. It's ironic because when people have made errors that have hurt people, the reason people call them out is because they're fighting for the humans that have been oppressed. But then it's ironic because then, you know, if you put them all in a leper colony, it's not really supporting the humanity that you so touted on the other end of the spectrum. But yeah, I haven't figured it out. But what is great is that you are beginning to recognize that you now have the power because of your platform to actually have these important conversations and come up with ideas or thoughts or causes yeah, and be listened to, which is just a great power. Are you happy you have it? I'm happy that I now have the power of choice. The bottom line is that I am an artist. People often call me an activist. I just think that I'm an artist and I'm an actress because I care about the human experience. And a lot of politics is about protecting the human experience. So it's a natural extension of what I want to do. But what I want to do is be an artist. And I think having this expanded platform, what I like about it is that it frees me up to make choices that are in line with my values. So rather than doing a big superhero movie, I just finished a movie in Hawaii by a really talented young Asian-American filmmaker. And it's about his ancestors' life in Hawaii. It's about colonization. It's about the annexation of Hawaii. It's about the land. It's about all these things and this culture that's dying and the conflicted feelings Hawaiians have about it. And it's a story we haven't really seen in America. And Hawaii is a part of America. I think I got like $100 a day for that. That's a privilege that I can make those choices because I have my platform and because I have my show. So if you have privilege, use it for good. And for me, that means making choices that are in line with my values. And my values are very much about humanity and representation. And you also have this particular caring for young Asian American girls. Very much so, yeah. Because I was one. (laughs) And you probably hear a lot from them. I do hear a lot from them. I hear, uh, and a lot positive and negative. And I welcome it all because um, even when it's really spiteful and mean towards me, I understand it. What particular aspect would they be upset about? I think there's a lot of internalized self-loathing. I don't know. It's a fear thing. If that person's successful, what does it say about me? So it's a comparison. Yeah, it could be that too. There's also prescribed ways we have of like how we think a woman should behave. And sometimes if you go outside that box, it ruffles people's feathers. I like to think of it as just a stop on every girl's larger journey of knowing herself. 
I definitely, when I was younger, thank God I didn't have social media then, because <laughs> can you imagine? Those were feelings that I had to work out. And at the time that I was, I really, really felt them strongly. And then as I grew into the world and had more experiences, some things changed and some things didn't. And I support that. I'm never going to tell anybody to shut up if they're insulting me because that's one of the great things about our country. We could be free to speak. And that's part of every girl's journey. So I want to encourage women to speak in whatever way. But also maybe help them along that journey that you described, the journey of being ourselves, which is much harder now for young women, don't you think? Yeah. With social media and constantly comparing their own lives um, against the highlight reel of somebody else's life. Yeah. And it's so funny because sometimes I feel like every single generation thinks they've got it right, but what they're doing is just a reaction to the previous one. It's like body positivity, for example. Previous generation where you had like the anorexic models and like that was the look. And now that's really not the look. And it's all about health. The models look different now. And that's great too. But what are we still talking about? We're still talking about appearance. So what if I was a naturally super skinny person and suddenly I feel bad in this culture because I'm not curvy or body positive or whatever? We're still talking mm. about physical looks, whether it's the one end of the spectrum or another end of the spectrum. I would like us for girls to just not even talk about looks, but talk about actions and behaviors. What are the actions? That's why they say when you meet a little girl today, don't be like, oh, you're so pretty. Not because she's not pretty, because she could be very pretty, but there's just so many other adjectives you mm -hmm. could use. Like, you're so talented. You're so funny. You're so caring. You're so brave. You're so smart. You're so inspiring. Yeah, we need to understand that it's not the messages, but what we're talking about. So it's not like saying like, oh, bigger bodies are beautiful. It's like, no, we're not even talking about bodies right now. <laughs> or if we're talking about bodies, we're talking about athleticism because look at what this body can do. It can swim this fast. Or like Simone Biles, it could do these flips in the air about the actions we do. I think that's more important to focus on. And that's what is, becomes easier when you have that uh, spiritual grounding that we talked about at the beginning, not to be lost in appearances. Yeah. Because if there is one thing for certain is that as we age, looks change. And if we're defined by our looks, it's pretty miserable. <laughs> I care about my looks. Nobody is so strong. Caring about it is different than being defined by it. That's true. But this is why Hustlers is such an interesting movie for me. It's about strippers and Wall Street guys. These are girls who grew up in a culture that told them their value was in their sexuality. So where are they going to find value, a.k.a. money, by using their sexuality? Men are told that their value lies in the size of their bank accounts. This movie happens during the financial crisis. So you have both ends of the spectrum. You have these women exploiting sex and their beauty for money. And then you have the Wall Street guys who are exploiting all this shady power stuff for money. And it's birthed of this culture that everyone's hustling for worthiness in the way that they think that they can be worthy. And then it ultimately crashes. But it's like, why do we judge women so harshly? This is what strippers do. Strippers use their bodies for entertainment to make money. So do athletes. Mm -hmm. Why do we judge one more harshly than the other? It's entertainment. Why do you think we judge them more harshly? I think we judge women for both not being sexy and being sexy. 
<laughs> for existing in a powerful state. That is a powerful state, owning your sexuality. I feel like Americans shame women for, like, basically existing sometimes, you know? You think it's different in Asia? Oh, I think it's possibly worse in Asia. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know because I didn't grow up there, but it's no secret that, especially in East Asia, there's a lot of patriarchal values. I was reading a thing in the New York Times a couple weeks ago about, you know how they had the one-child policy for a while? And how a lot of Chinese families prized sons more than daughters. Mm -hmm. So now that that generation has grown up, the proportion of men to women is something like one woman for every, I think it was eight men, something like that. Because when they could only have (laughs) one child, they were choosing to like not have the girl. Or like give up the girl for adoption or something like that. And so now it's a problem because these men, <laughs> they're just outnumbered and they can't find wives. You see the effects of what a patriarchal society does. I don't know, but maybe I'll live in Asia one day and find out. <laughs> Do you want to? Is there any craving to go and live in Asia? I'm actually kind of a homebody. There's a part of me that really wants to live somewhere like where I grew up in Virginia. Somewhere where the leaves change in the fall. Or you get snow in the winter, somewhere quiet. And have children? I'm not sure about that one yet. You're not ruling it out, but you're not sure. Yeah. I feel like I'm supposed to, but I feel like that's the wrong reason. I don't really know. I had this thought the other day. So you know how I was just talking about how I have this privilege, right? That I can choose to do this movie in Hawaii that pays me pennies versus like some other big action movie. And how I love that because it's informed by my values. And the other day I thought, oh, my God, if I ever had a kid, my values would change. And I would probably take a movie where I made more money because at that point I would care about taking care of a kid. So that same question I asked myself when I was a broke waitress, are you still okay if you're doing this when you're 45? That meant without a child because it was based on my value systems then, which didn't factor in a Mm -hmm. kid. When I thought of that, it was a terrifying prospect to me. I was like, oh, my God, if I had a kid, it might affect my choices in terms of my artistry. But just enough to be able to feed it, send it to school. It's not like an overwhelming amount. It doesn't have to be, but I don't know how I would be. Maybe I would just be so scared that even if I had enough, I'd be so scared because I'm so in love with this child that I want to stockpile as much as I could. Right, so that you could make life easy forever Uh, for the child. Yeah, which is also an illusion. You don't know how you'd behave in that situation. You're afraid you would become a snowplow mother. You know, these are the mothers that want to bulldoze all difficulties from their child's path. You know, I don't know. I'd like to say that I wouldn't be that, but who knows? But Do you have kids? I have two kids. And so what I tell everyone is if you are sure you don't want kids, don't have kids. Mm-hmm. You don't need to have kids. Yeah. But if you are in doubt, have them. <laughs> <laughs> because you're never going to regret it. The amazing thing about kids is that you can never figure it out in advance. You just have to completely abandon any sense of control. Talk about faith and religion. Talk about faith and religion and love. I think for most of us, it's like the most spiritual expression in our lives because it is based on loving and unconditionality. Yeah. So let's end (laughs) on 
how you take care of yourself. Like, let me ask you, do you sleep with your phone? Only if it takes me out to dinner first. (laughs) (laughs) And if it doesn't take you out to dinner, do you sleep with it? You know, it is on my nightstand. Yeah, I use it as like an alarm clock. But then if you wake up in the middle of the night for whatever reason and you can't go right back to sleep, are you tempted to look at your phone? Not in the middle of the night, but in the morning. First thing in the morning? Not first thing, but it's up there. But now you have your little phone bed that I gave you where you can put your phone and tuck it in. And it will also prepare you for having a child and tucking it in. (laughs) (laughs) But it has to be in a different room, you said, right? Yes, in a different room, a little ritual. (laughs) (laughs) So when you wake up, what's the first thing you do? I drink a bottle of water. A whole bottle. An entire bottle of water. And then? And then I probably look at my phone. Do you meditate? Sometimes. I kind of think guitar is my form of meditation these days. And how many hours sleep when you're not uh, on a plane? I find myself naturally waking up around six hours, but I try to always give myself eight hours. If I anticipate that I need to get up at eight, then I'll go to bed at 12. But I do find I naturally usually get up after six hours. And you feel recharged? Yeah, I feel fine. That's good if that's what you need. Yeah. As you look at your whole life and everything amazing that's happened in the last few years, what do you think is the biggest change you've seen in yourself? I think I've become less extroverted in public. I used to like go to bars and I would just talk to everybody. And now I get like weird fans and I get threats. I get a lot of things that kind of have made me a little paranoid. I have to learn how to navigate in public now. But that's why I said I'm a homebody now. Whereas I used to love going out and just doing things. I just prefer to not feel like at any moment somebody could come up to me and know me without knowing me. So that's an anxiety that I'm still uh, adjusting to. That's a big change. It's changed my behavior a lot. So let me end by asking you, what makes you smile? You have a great smile. Thank you. Lots of things make me smile. I like jokes. (laughs) I like dumb jokes. I like puns a lot. Um, Yes, I know you have a pun podcast you like. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. (laughs) What is it called? It's called Punk Ast. Yeah. And what about your bunny? Does your bunny make you smile? Sometimes. Sometimes she just annoys me. That's how you know it's true love. No, she makes me smile for sure. Well, you make a lot of us smile. So <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Thank you so much thank for you. who you are, for everything you've done, and for all your wisdom. Oh, like I can't wait for what's to come. Seriously, I think you're going to be able to help us all navigate a world which is becoming more complicated and and harder. So thank you for that and for all your talent. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. We hope you heard something that inspires and empowers you. Be sure to follow the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at thriveglobal.com or reach out on social media using the hashtag ThrivePodcast. Tell us who you'd like to hear from and what your favorite micro steps are. Until next time, be well and thrive.
This podcast is a production of Thrive Global and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Ariana Huffington. Thrive Global is produced by Sandy Smolens and mixed by Matt Noble at Audiation Studios in Bronxville, New York. Thank you to Lindsay Benoit O'Connell for booking and wrangling our wonderful guests and for providing editorial oversight. Derek Clement is our engineer, and special thanks to Nikki Itor and Kari Lieberman. See you next week. Audiation.